Hello and welcome to Tangry Dome, I'm your host Iggy. Well, that card was pretty good, wasn't it? Speaking, of course, about UFC 267. And um, I think we would all agree that uh, this card was pretty damn good. And uh, uh, the main event uh, of that card certainly uh, warrants some in-depth discussion. Speaking, of course, about uh, the headliner for this card. Piotr Jan versus Corey Sanhagen. And uh, while in the process of recording the recap, my first attempt to record the recap for that event, I've realized that uh, I, personally I think Corey Sanhagen versus uh, Piotr Jan warrants its own in-depth look, and so I'm going to break this discussion in two parts. Uh, we're going to discuss all the things that uh, Piotr Jan has done to navigate all the things, all the looks, all the different uh, cool uh, stylistic quirks that uh, Corey Sanhagen presented to Jan. And then I'm going to talk about everything else. Uh, depending on how much time the discussion of uh, uh, Jan versus Sanhagen w w would take. Uh, also, you're going to hear me trying to settle on multiple different pronunciations of uh, Corey Sanhagen's name. Because everyone seems to pronounce it differently. I think uh, the UFC announcers pronounce it as Sandhagen. Others pronounce it as Sanhagen. Mm, and I'm not sure which one is more correct. <laughs> and also, I have a tendency to anglicize, uh, anglicize uh, Slavic names. Because it's, it makes the flow of my speech in spoken English much easier. But uh, obviously the correct pronunciation is Piotr Jan. And you're going to hear it a bunch as well. So bear with me. <laughs> but regardless, uh, the UFC is, as always, very, uh, very, seems very, it seems very reluctant to put on uh, the lower weight class fighters uh, on the main event spot. There were a couple moments when, there were a couple times when they uh, put, I think they, made Davis and Figueredo headline uh, his cards, but uh, but overall, it's uh, it's it's not a common occurrence, and it wasn't uh, wasn't the case here. Uh, the actual main event of the card was uh, Glover Teixeira versus uh, uh, Jan Blachowicz. I honestly don't know why they did that, because uh, obviously, anyone with an eye for the sport would have realized that what the actual main event of the card really is uh, but regardless I'm just I'm only mentioning this because when I was watching the card live going from Jan versus Sanhagen to Glover Teixeira um, to Jan Blakovic versus Glover Teixeira felt like uh, celebrating the birth of your firstborn son returning from the hospital and then immediately getting T-boned by a dump truck. That's how it felt. And this aside, it's kind of the story of the cards as well, and kind of the story of most cards where uh, the momentum is excellent, the pacing is excellent, the fight, the, one fight after another, banger after banger after banger, and then suddenly the big man appear. But... We're used to this. 
It's uh, not a new thing. It's not something. It's not. It's not a new trend that threatens to ruin MMA. It was this way for for the entirety of the sport's history, essentially. So I'm not gonna prattle on about it much longer, and I'm just gonna let's just let's just uh, dive in, shall we? Let's just uh, discuss uh, what we set out to discuss. Piotr Jan versus Corey Sanhagen. One of the most, uh, it, it, I would straight away, I would admit that it was kind of one-way traffic, particularly after the second half of the second round. But uh, it was uh, interesting enough uh, to to kind of hold my attention and uh, still feel uh, very. I still felt very tense watching it because there was so much stuff going on. Both fighters were presenting each other so many different looks at once. Uh, you you would still have to watch it very closely to realize just how much information they're both processing to uh, mount to try and mount their own offense. Uh, I st- naturally, Paterian still proved to be way too good. Uh, for Corey's direction changes and feints and all the volume to dupe him into passivity. But one thing has to be pointed out. That Corey Sanhagen that showed up against Piotr Jan on that night would have pretty much whooped the rest of the division without much issue. Aside from some certain caveats, of course. Uh, One thing has to be mentioned... Uh, uh, I think it's very important. It's kind of, it's uh, more of a, more of a description for the philosophical approaches to fighting, uh, the contrasting philosophical approaches to fighting showcased by Piotr Jan and Corey Sanhagen. Corey Sanhagen, to me, in my eyes, he sort of represents this already existing uh, MMA meta, the volume-based meta, and the meta based around. Uh, ceaseless movement and constant, constant, uh, well, constant volume and uh, his footwork. It's kind of, it's very good, but it's very good in that same MMA mold, the Dominic Cruz style of movement and the TJ Dillashaw style of movement. Uh, what everyone thought good footwork looks like. And his entire style in general is kind of like, it's more in your face, it's more directly visible, it's more, uh, it, it kind of catches your eye much faster. Uh, it catches your eye up front, purely because of how many stuff that he, uh, how many things he does at the same time, at any given moment. And uh, Petrian is decidedly not that. He's very much a minimalist, but he's not a minimalist in terms of on, only using a couple of tools or only preferring a couple of different looks. He still does as much, if not more, things as Corey Sanhagen does, but it's decidedly more subdued. It's more subtle. And I think if you were to watch other more well-established sports such as boxing or kickboxing or Muay Thai, you would find many different parallels between Piotr Jan and, uh, and how Piotr Jan does things with uh, some of the best fighters in those sports. Particularly his approach to uh, kind of 
people tend to call it snowballing, but it's not very. It's not snowballing as much as it is uh, corralling his opponents into situations where they would be outmatched after gathering enough information about their preferences and about their habits to sort of punish them. Now, what do I mean by that? It's all very vague. It's It kind of sounds strange. It kind of, it, to some it may sound like I'm veering towards that mind smash territory of kind of like uh, analyzing their body language. No, I'm not doing that. It's I'm actually talking about very tangible things. Uh, all right, so the philosophical approaches to fighting. Let's take someone like, um, well, let's take someone like Corey Sandhagen, for example, or like someone like Max Holloway. What do these fighters do to win their fights? They kind of, uh, I presume they still study their opponents because they come in with uh, certain very specific uh, adaptations, um, uh, adaptations meant to uh, help them navigate the matchups in question. But what Corey Sanhagen and Max Holloway or other fighters in that similar mold do, they look at a, at a fighter and then see what the fighter does, uh, learn it, and then ask themselves, what should I need to do to be the best me against that guy on that night? What does Corey Sanhagen needs to do to be the best Corey Sanhagen he could possibly be on that night? Meanwhile, someone like Volkanovsky or, for example, Prime Fedor Emelianenko, and other similar fighters, what do they do? They look at a the fighter, they study the fighter, they study the matchup that they're going to meet, and uh, they ask themselves, what is the, the first level, top priority adaptations I need to do to be able to navigate this guy? What do I need to do to sort of kind of adjust my whole style to navigate the questions presented by the my by my opponent of me, so it's it's kind of more strategic. It's kind of like more about uh, doing high level, first level adaptations from which they make the specific adjustments, the specific technical adjustments that they bring into the fight later on on the day of the fight. So their entire camp is predicated upon answering the broader, uh, broader questions presented uh, to them by their opponent, kind of like. In which direction should I take the fight? Should I pressure? Should I go back? Should I go on the back foot? Should I uh, should I wrestle? That kind of stuff. Meanwhile, with Corey Sanhagen, it's more like in the moment. More like, uh, uh, this guy does such and such things. In the fight, I'm gonna do... do um, I'm gonna do the same thing I do, but adjust it in a very specific way to kind of to kind of brute force my way through. I'm not saying it's a bad approach, and uh, with uh, most matchups it works splendidly. It's completely fine to use that. However, when met with someone like Peter Jan, and uh, I'm gonna point out in which way Peter Jan is different now, uh, Peter Jan kind of looks at his opponent. He studies them, and then he goes, oh, I'm going to take a round, maybe two rounds off even. I'm going to take some time and see what this guy does. I've already studied the tape, and Paul Felder, I think, pointed this out on commentary. Paul Felder was actually very good that night. He said, 
meeting your opponent in the cage is very different from studying his footage. And so what Petr Jan does, he kind of tries to get a feel for his opponent's game. He kind of tries to figure out what he's going to do, what, figure out the exact, the precise timings of his opponent's offense, what, uh, what it feels like to defend against this guy. And then, once uh, his opponent shows him all his best looks, shows him, shows him all his best tools, Petrian goes, now I'm going to make this guy pay for trying to do that against me. And I'm not speaking about a ver very specific counters that he uses, and I'm going to talk about how... Uh, I'm not talking about the, the specific tools that he uses. They're, t they're different every time. What's, what's important here is the concept of punishing your opponent for attempting to fight their own game. So it kind of serves as a direct counter to that type of... Uh, I, I'm kinda, I don't like calling it a brute force approach, but it's kind of like... It, I guess it works in, in this context. Corey Sanhagen tried to simply be Corey Sanhagen against Petrian, and, and Petrian let Corey Sanhagen do his own thing for however many minutes that he let him. And then he, he was like, oh, now, I'm, now I know what you're trying to do, and now I'm going to punish you for trying to be yourself, essentially. It's incredibly mentally draining to fight an opponent like that. It kind of it ties really well into the overall game of Petrian, which is pressure. Which is, uh, like, and it's not pressure in the... Uh, in the in-your-face type of pressure that we've seen already in MMA. It's not the Tony Ferguson style of pressure. It's not Max Holloway swarming his opponents. Uh, and this is, this is another thing. People often confuse pressure with swarming in MMA. And what Petr Jan does, it's, that's, how, that's how nuanced, patient, methodical pressure actually looks like. It's using... Jack Slack talks about it and talks about it all the time. Talks about this concept of using your presence to wear down your opponent, to psych him out into making mistakes, and that's what Peter Jan excels at. And I cannot stress this enough. It's amazing to watch when he's able to do his own thing. But now we're gonna have to actually discuss the fight that took place. Uh, Kind of round by round, what, what was happening in the fight. Corey Sanhagen started very fast. And I saw Sean Madden on Twitter talk about how he felt like it was a bit too fast of a start from Corey. And um, I, I guess I'm, I, I think I know where he's coming from. I suppose they, were, they, believed, they believed that uh, it's better for Corey to kind of uh, let Petr Janos have his... Uh, slow first round, and not show him uh, all the cards that they have. But on on the other hand, one of the more effective ways of winning uh, rounds against Petrian is uh, not... I guess... In, uh, now that I mention it, I don't think sparking Petrian out early is the way to go. I don't think it's going to happen. Petrian is too fucking good for that, to, to allow that to happen. I mean, of course, if he meets some kind of massive puncher, some kind of pound-for-pound -pound threat with regards to punching power, he may get caught and he may get hurt. It's, uh, it's kind of inevitable, it's fighting, but uh, his skill set would allow him to survive that pretty easily, I think. So, but I kind of, I, kind of, I believe the thinking was that 
Corey felt like uh, he should try and come out like a house on fire to kind of take that first round, like kind of like in that same style of thinking where people believe that Piotr Jan is a, is a slow starter and he's not, just likes to take the round off to kind of figure out what the opponent is going to do. I don't think he's going to, he's the type of guy who needs to kind of uh, warm up. I think if he needs to start fast, he's going to start fast. But I'm just kind of trying to explain what I believe the rationale was for that decision. But either way, Corey Sanhagen started very fast, started uh, pouring on volume, uh, using many different uh, nifty looks, kind of like using going front foot heavy to throw right hand leads, kind of going going backwards to kind of like throw volume jabs to kind of make Petr Jan cover up. fill his vision with uh, with static, throwing many, many feints, going to the body very early, very hard, which is uh, a good decision all the time. Like, always, always a good decision. You should always go to the body early and hard in title fights. It's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of a given, you know. I kind of expect elite fighters to know how to do that. Uh... And it would would have worked against most opponents. It's a good approach against most any opponent in MMA. But with uh, Petr Jan comes the danger of... Well, first of all, you can beat the dog piss out of, Jan, out of Jan's body with a baseball bat. And he's not gonna give a single flying fuck. The man has a supremely conditioned core. And I think he talked about it uh, uh, on the presser in that he pays specific attention to conditioning his body against body shots and that he um, has been hit with many body shots during the course of his uh, training back when he competed in amateur boxing. And I presume when he started learning Muay Thai in Thailand, uh, he got kicked to the body a whole bunch. It's kind of like, it's uh, one of those examples of uh, sports-specific athleticism that uh, many people kind of uh, forget about when talking about athleticism uh, athleticism in MMA. People frequently take athleticism to mean uh, scary, like, frightening, explosive power. And it's not very, it's not, it's not only that. Athleticism takes many forms. For example, Max Holloway is supremely athletic, but... Uh, if you were operating by that NFL-type metric, I guess, he wouldn't seem athletic, but he is. He has uh, an iron chin. He has an iron chin. He has an endless gas tank. Those are very important for a fighter to have. Very important athletic, sports-specific athletic attributes to have. Both uh, Corey and Jan have those in space, actually. But uh, I digress. Uh, the approach was fine. Conceptually, it's fine, but it's uh, it's all wrong for Jan, you know? It's, it's not the type of approach you should take against Jan. First of all, one of the things that, if you go back and watch that first round, what, what, one of the things that uh, should, uh, be, should be made evident to you, uh, it, cannot, it, it may look like Jan is getting boxed up in that first round, and uh, Danny Martin pointed this out immediately after the fight, and I think it's very important to put emphasis on that uh, on, on that observation. Uh, 
uh, Corey wasn't landing clean much of the time. He landed a couple good shots, but it, uh, but it wasn't like he wasn't boxing Petrian up. People may criticize Petrian for utilizing a high guard. That is, it's kind of basic, but it's a very surface level analysis, because the way Petrian utilizes his guard, his high guard is way more nuanced than someone like, for example, Gagey uses the high guard. He constantly, his chin is always buried within his chest, essentially. He constantly folds uh, on both hips, constantly rolls with punches. All he, he his, uh, uh, all the punches that uh, land on, if they land, they usually land on the top of his head. It's kind of the bull guard type thing, uh, type thing. Uh, Jack Slack talks about in some of his articles, but it's it, it's not just that. He uses it situationally. He doesn't take all his punches on top of his head because it's kind of, you know, you're going to hurt doing that all the time. And so he combines that with slips, with hand fighting, with constantly adjusting the elbows, the position of the elbows uh, on the guard, in the guard. And uh, so it kind of it looks like he's getting boxed up, but, but he's not. He's defending constantly defending all the shots that are coming towards his head. And uh, the punches that... Uh, he, he also makes uh, as, uh, an effort, makes the effort of defending to the body, but it's kind of like... It all, due to how conditioned his uh, core is, it seems like it's kind of... It's more of a secondary priority to him. It's not the typical thing of MMA fighters not knowing how to defend body shots. And... Um, Jan is kind of like, oh, I'm, I can take this one. I can take that punch. I can take that punch. And then I'm going to counter that punch. Kind of tr- tries to see by feel whether or not the shot is worth defending. It, kinda, it, it sounds wanky, but it's actually what elite fighters do when you listen to them, when you listen to the interviews, and when you read some of the memoirs of certain fighters where they would point out how they pay attention to things like his opponent's breathing, uh the power that comes with each shot, and it's an important. It's very important because if you go back and watch the, Jan's performance against Jose Aldo, you can see Peter Jan start realizing that the most power the, Aldo always thr- throws the first shot with as much power as he can, and then the power kind of wanes, and so he pays specific attention to tanking. Uh, blocking the first shot and maybe tanking a couple the the couple follow up shots to set up his counter. And it all happens in the moment. It all happens within seconds of the exchange happening. And that kind of just kind of shows the depth and breadth of uh, Peter Jan's potency in the pocket. But regardless, first round breezes through. Uh, Peter Jan kind of navigates all the looks that uh, Corinne Sanhagen was uh, showing him and. Instantly, kind of like, within moments, he already has a picture in his head of what Corey Sanhagen is going to do. Corey Sanhagen has done a good job of kind of like using misdirection steps, showing that he's going to exit one way and going the other. But Peter Jan was able to see through that. There wasn't, I don't think there was, there were any moments where Peter Jan was like, well, like, where the fuck are you going? being confused he, he was constantly on staying on top of uh, Corey Sanhagen and Corey Sanhagen was forced to use way way more movement to get to where he wants 
and contrast that to Peter Jan making uh, like maybe like three small steps to get to where he wants, which is in front of Corey Sandhagen at all times, not letting Corey Sandhagen gain advantageous angles on him. And Corey Sandhagen looked to kind of push Piotr Jan backwards in the first round, which is a good idea, I suppose, but in the process, it kind of revealed the extent of his toolkit within that first round by trying to do that, by trying to start fast. I think that's why Sean Madden was uh, so uh, f- feeling so much trepidation about Corey Sandhagen start- starting fast, but uh, Jan was essentially forced to start countering right off the gate, and he kind of connected with... Uh, he had a couple. Corey Sanhagen had a couple close calls with uh, Jan's hooks in that first round because Jan was started countering to, uh, st- countering the hooks to the body that Corey was landing with and looping those kind of like casting hooks over uh, Corey Sanhagen's shoulders and Corey Sanhagen had the instincts to kind of cover up and uh, he kind of was um, he defended the hooks well up until the point where Jan made a specific adjustment, and I'm going to get into that. So anyway, the first round ends, and that's where the contrast in corner work starts to shine. It starts to make itself evident after the first round already. It's a very specific criticism I have towards corner work, in that uh, I find this happening very often with American corners in particular, and that American corners kind of preoccup- preoccupy themselves with giving pep talks more than they uh, more than they try to actually give tactical advice, tactical information, data, actionable data. It's all like you've got this champ, come on, bro. Let's get this bread. That type of stuff. And contrast that to Jan's corner. Here is the translation that I've written down. Uh, It's a translation of uh, the advice that Jan received in his corner. It's it's, uh, not full advice because uh, the camera switched back and forth. But the gist of it, uh, I I think I managed to get the gist of it. Uh, After the first round, what did the corner say to Peter Jan? I quote, Great job so far. Keep pressing. Look for kicks on stance switches. This is significant because both fighters were switching stances all over the place. And switching stances presents different openings for different strikes. And so, right out of the gate, the corner told him to look for kicks on stance switches. And Piotr Jan like, pulled in one of the best striking performances, one of the best kicking performances in MMA, body kicking performances in MMA, that I've ever seen. So, they told him to look for kicks and stance switches, and they told him to not retreat for free. They told him to look for backfoot counters. That's a direct quote. Do not retreat for free, look for backfoot counters. Another, it's an important, uh, obviously very important advice, but uh, you notice that Peter Jan never took a backward step, essentially, for the duration of, of the rest of the fight. And uh, the most important advice they've given him after this one was do not concede the hand fight. Corey Sanhagen was doing a very good job of tying up Peter Jan's hands. 
He's, he's done an excellent job of doing that. He constantly kept fighting with Jan's hands. It's just that Piotr Jan adjusted to it. And then in the first round, why Corey Sanhagen had so much success landing with so much volume? It wasn't, it wasn't clear volume, but he, he, he was landing a lot on the guard nonetheless. And the, the reason for that was that he kept checking Jan's hands. He kept trying to pin his hands to his head and try and kind of loop his punches around that and work around the guard, kind of try to manipulate Jan's guard. And it's a very good idea. It's just that Jan's guard, Jan kind of caught up on that, didn't let him do that for much of the fight from that point onwards. And so the full advice was that don't concede the hand fight, either pull your hand back and counter, or engage in the hand fight and look for kicks. And Jan did both. And from... The second round onwards, you could see Jan starting to more actively engage in the hand fight. And whenever he engaged in the hand fight, he looked for kicks. And whenever from the hand fight, Corey Sanhagen tried to pull away and switch stances. He usually pulled away by switching the stance. And then the kick came blasting in. Immediately. Like, right on cue. Piotr Jan used the, kind of, the distance trigger of uh, Corey Sanhagen pulling away from him, he saw, he felt him pulling away from him, and immediately the kick came in. Clean, sharp, right to the gut. With amazing technique to boot. Corey Sanhagen was still, was still trying to power on volume, but the volume became more sporadic and it became less clear. There were less clear connection, there were less even glancing connection. A lot of them came... Uh, a lot of them landed on the shoulders, on the elbows, and a lot of them missed. Piotr Jan started making Corey miss, and it's very important. Because that's when Piotr Jan started doing uh, what I was talking about, what he does. He started punishing Corey Sanhagen for trying to pour on volume. Still with me, right? So, Corey Sanhagen uh, finds that his offense is being stymied. He finds that his shots are lending less and less, and that uh, Piotr Jan is finding his chin and his body way more often than he does Piotr Jan's. So what does he do? He tries to mix it up. He shoots kind of a desperation high crotch shot. Kind of like, he doesn't go to the knees. He kind of like bends over and tries to grab, uh, grab a hold of the high crotch, which I guess he can do sometimes. It's fine. But... Jan's defense is too on point. Jan's takedown defense is too sharp. Jan immediately wraps... Uh, he immediately grabs a hold of the belly wizard, uh, where you kind of wrap your head ar hand around your opponent's like midsection underneath the armpit. Uh, and then you pivot your hips backwards. Uh, Jan kind of... I think Jan didn't have the time to go full-on knee sprawl, but he was able to kind of pivot and sprawl nonetheless, kind of dragged Corey down to the ground with him, and uh, Corey was left completely bent over with his head touching the canvas, and from there Jan transitioned to a front headlock and kept, uh, and kept holding Corey's hand again, kept pulling on him, from there, you can. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't in the position to snap him down, but he was. It was still a very uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable position for Corey, from which Jan was able to transition to the clinch. So he transitioned to the clinch. He let Corey stand up immediately. Uh, he kept uh, holding, uh, holding the overhook from the front headlock, 
where where he transitioned to the clinch from the front headlock, his uh, arm was still wrapped up around Corey's left arm, and uh, and uh, his uh, and Jan's left arm was free, and so from there he landed an excellent elbow right off the break and kind of i guess not on the break but kind of still in the clinch he landed the clinch elbow and then he let cory um uh, let cory loose i guess so this sort of thing we saw yan work in transition like that before more impressively i'd say in transition but it still kind of showcases the what yan uh, tends to look for and we saw that play out multiple times during the fight, where yeah, they would kind of engage in the clinch situation, kind of engage in the grappling. Uh, Yan would defend the grappling situation, and then immediately blast Corey with a sh- with a hard, hard shot to the head or to the body, uh, right as Corey looked to exit. And all these triggers that Yan has. They're very hard to kind of defend against. They're very hard to counter. Because they come so quickly. And they come on transition. They come from that... In that grey area between grappling and striking. And this is what... Really... This is what MMA is all about. This is about transitional attacks. It's kind of exploiting the rule set. The rule set allows you to work in transition. Like no other rule set on earth allows you to do that. And Jan mastered that. It's amazing to watch. Anyway, the rest of the second round plays out. Again, the corner advice. The corner advice uh, after round the, the second round, and uh, they didn't show us uh, corner advice. Uh, f- f- uh, didn't show us Jan's corner afterwards. I think it was um, round one and round two. And uh, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter. If uh, whether they show this or not, because the kind of the groundwork, the groundwork for Jan's dominance was kind of like already established. But either way, corner, corner advice: He's attempted the takedown mid-round to give you something to think about and attack in transition. Watch out for that. Take him down yourself at the end of the round if you feel like messing with him, but you're eating him alive with that double attack. Keep at it. The double attack. Uh, what are they talking about? Uh, we've, we've established early that uh, switching stances all over the place uh, constantly opens up new avenues for attack, new openings. And uh, when you're standing open stance, we talk, to, talk about this a lot. Repeat listeners will understand what I'm talking about, but just for the sake of those who kind of may be a little confused... There's closed stance matchups and there's open stance matchups. Closed stance means both fighters are standing with their, uh, well, kind of like, the kind of mirror images of each other, right? Uh, both, like both fighters are southpaw, both, both fighters are orthodox. It opens up uh, different angles from the open stance. From open stance, uh, the lead hands are touching. You're able to hand fight from there. And uh, what's open? What's there? The belly for the body kick. And the double attack means kind of mixing up, kind of turning the rear side of your body into a, uh, into a platform for launching similar-looking attacks. Because uh, the movement 
where you throw your rear hand looks very much like the movement you need uh, to throw a rear kick. So it's kind of very hard to see. Even elite fighters kind of struggle with that sometimes, because if you conceal it well, even at the elite level, you're likely to connect. It's very hard to react to it. Especially if both fighters are constantly switching stances. It's kind of like, it's very hard to cre- keep track of which stances, which, who, what, what openings are present, and it kind of creates more confusion. That's why, that's why fights between uh, fighters who are switch hitters usually turn into such chaos. And I think, I think, uh, one, well, once again, I think Jack Slack talked about this uh, on some of his uh, striking articles. But either way, more of the same. Uh, I think the third round was when Yan started really letting loose. Started started letting his hands fly. <laughs> and that's where the knockdown came. Uh, Piotr Yan kind of got the bead on Corey's direction changes. He already was able to follow him. And already he was already throwing intercepting strikes. He was throwing hooks. He was throwing kicks. Uh, the kicks connected much more cleanly, uh, of course, but uh, what this tells us is that Yan already knew in which direction Corey is going to move, even though Corey was constantly fainting direction changes. But Corey was able to defend the intercepting strikes, the hooks at least, and so what does Yan do? Well, he goes one step further and adds a spinning attack instead of, uh, instead of the hook. He kind of like tornado punches <laughs> Corey Sanhagen and drops him like a bag of rocks. <laughs> it's like, it, uh, many people have no, have told, talked about this before, but it looked like uh, uh, it, it looked like a combo for uh, a combination attack from a from a video game, except for real. And uh, Yan kind of almost nailed Corey with that combination before, but. The second connection was much more clean. He kind of caught Corey mid-step, circling off, and kind of, and which created this collision where the backfist was able to connect right on the chin, kind of spun Corey's jaw around, and then immediately followed with a kind of arcing hook to the temple, and it's just Corey just went down. And what's interesting to me, what's uh, what's kind of like, it's a nifty little detail. Many people throw backfists kind of like uh, with um, the knuckles pointed outward, while Yan was throwing it like a hammer fist. It was throwing a, not a backfist, but a spinning hammer fist. And this allows for a much harder connection with uh, the harder part of your fist, because the reason why you throw your fist during a normal punch with your knuckles pointed forward it's because it creates a power line from your shoulder from your hip from to your shoulder to your knuckles kind of like un- an unbroken line through which kinetic energy can be transferred it creates for a smaller uh i guess for a smaller point of concentration for that force and when you throw a back fist like a normal back fist with your uh fist pointed upwards with the thumb pointed upwards like uh like you're holding a mug uh, that disperses all that force. Also, you can you, you can injure your hand throwing a hammer, uh, a back fist like that. But when you turn your fist, uh, kind of like with with the thumb parallel to the ground, then the uh, 
the, then the uh, surface through which the energy is, dis is dispersed becomes smaller, and it also kind of makes for a harder. It basically makes for a harder connection. <laughs> Not gonna go into too much detail with that one. Anyway, uh, connecting, but but then from the knockdown, uh, what was uh, Jan followed up on the knockdown with hellacious ground and pound. And there you could see the position of superiority in grappling. Granted, Corey was kind of buzzed, and so uh, it's kind of like the old uh, the old saying where each punch on the ground kind of like knocks belts, <laughs> knocks off the colors of your belts if you have some kind of belt in jiu-jitsu. Either way, dangerous ground and pound. Corey's, uh, Corey nonetheless is able to get up. Uh, a scramble ensues, during which uh, both uh, fighters kind of uh, use the threat of the heel hook to establish, uh, to assume better, more advantageous positions. Then they get up, and then kind of like, basically Corey weathers the storm to enter round three. And they didn't show us Jan's corner that time. They showed us Sanhagen's corner. And that's where my criticism starts to ring more true with each passing second because they didn't offer much in the way of tactical advice like at all it was the whole minute was essentially them going you got this champ you got this bro let's bang this motherfucker out that kind of stuff and i guess there is concern and uh, there is genuine concern that you may overload your fighter especially after a knockdown like that but Nonetheless, at least some tactical advice would be warranted here. And I'm not sure if it's them focusing on bringing their fighter back into it, trying, being preoccupied with trying to raise the morale of their fighter, but or them not understanding what Yan was really doing. But saying something like... Uh, Look out for kicks, watch out for kicks, check the kicks, cross-check the kicks, look for counter-kicks, uh, look for uppercuts whenever Jan kind of like takes the punches on the top of his head and then ducks down, uh, that kind of stuff. That would be better than nothing. I'm not sure if it would have worked, but it's better than nothing. Oh, one other thing I would have to, uh, I have to point out is that Jan fought much more upright than he usually does. Against most of his opponents, he kind of um, assumes this boxing crouch where his uh, back is kind of rounded and he hides his chin behind his lead shoulder. It's kind of like a very traditional Soviet boxing type, type stance. And this one he fought much more upright. And obviously, well, one of the obvious reasons for that is that he f uh, was looking to kick a lot. But what's interesting is that conventional wisdom says that against a taller, uh, against a taller opponent, as, uh, that, that's true in boxing at the very least, against a taller opponent, you have to make yourself a smaller target. But since this is MMA and kicks are allowed, uh, Petrian just decided to stand more upright. And normally that would lead to Corey, Corey landing. Y you would think that that would normally lead to Corey landing much more with his punches, but that wasn't the case. So what this tells us, well, basically that Jan was uh, preparing precisely for that scenario. He kind of assumed a uh, more upright stance, and he immediately like clicked in his head that, oh, more punches are going to come, and so I'm going to have to be ready for that. Uh, 
and it became more evident uh, with each passing exchange because, uh, uh, well, before the knockdown, that's when uh, Yan connected with multiple hard, hard body shots, and then immediately kind of immediately evaded all of Corey's counter offense. None of it landed. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Yan immediately spun for the knockdown. It, it was kind of—it was a crazy exchange. You should basically just everyone go back and watch the fight in its entirety. It's amazing. Every exchange is kind of nuts. Okay, I, I'm wondering if I should have made this uh, podcast. Into, uh, wondering if I should have turned this podcast into a watch along episode, kind of like the Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater episode, where I kind of broke down each exchange uh, punch by punch. Uh, maybe later. Anyway, uh, third, round three starts, uh, the, m- more and more exchanges, Yan is winning more and more exchanges, and then w- another uh, highlight from the corner. Uh, it's the middle of round three, the corner sees Corey starting to circle off past Yan's lead shoulder. They were standing open stance, Yan was southpaw, Corey was orthodox, he was circling off behind Yan's lead shoulder because, well... He was standing uh, south ball, <laughs> and uh, the corner yells, "The uppercut will get through." Yan pivots on his back foot, on his back foot. Normally, you usually only see that in striking sports. Uppercuts Corey with his rear hand off the pivot, switches orthodox, cuts off Corey's escape route, and traps him along the fence. Sounds simple, right? <laughs> it's just an insane sequence. Like, where do you see MMA fighters doing that? Just amazing. Yeah, and uh, basically the fourth round is... Uh, well, that uh, I'm sorry, that was uh, the middle of the... Was that the middle of the third round or the fourth round? If If it was the middle of the third round, then the third round was when... Yan Pearl hurt Corey the most, I guess. Anyway, kind of get him. It's, it doesn't matter, really. I guess it matters because Yan works kind of amps the ante round by round, but the fourth round was when Yan really opened up and started dominating, like really dominated the exchanges. He started dominating the exchanges way earlier than that, but kind of the fourth round is kind of punctuated. It was kind of a beatdown, really. And... Uh, this is what forced Corey to kind of sit on his bicycle for the rest of the fifth. Uh, Corey spent most of the fight on his bicycle, and then despite his uh, corner's attempts to kind of like motivate him to just sort of uh, go out there and start blasting everything, uh, kind of letting it all out there. But that's, uh, I think, uh, Corey made the right decision to get on his bicycle and kind of evade for the rest of the round because trying to go all out would have. Uh, I think it would have got Corey finished, really. At the rate the beatdown was going, I think Corey was liable to get hurt if he followed that advice. And anyway, Corey's on his bicycle, kind of evading, evading, evading. Yan finds the spot, throws a throwaway one-two. Corey kind of half-assedly, he's already faded, kind of like barely manages to cover up with one hand. And then... Yan immediately, with no delay, spins spins and hooks his heel around Corey's guard and for a clean connection. Just decks Corey on the, on the point of the chin. Uh, 
and that that's where well not on the point of the chin on the jaw and that's one which is kind of, it's one of the uh, instances where uh, well yes Corey's chin is insane but also like uh the mechanics the technique just off the charts it's it's a movie combination <laughs> Max Holloway actually does something similar, where he would throw a 1-2 or a 1-1-2 and then immediately spin around for a connection to the body. And it's also a combination that uh, Jan used, and I think it was in the second round, where he also threw a 1-2 and then uh, kicked uh, Corey in the gut. Oh, and he also connected with a very clean head kick in, in the fifth. He kind of used the double attack once again, kind of showed that he's going to throw the, right, the uh, left hand and then uh, threw that massive massive extremely clean high kick that uh, connected clean on the jaw and Corey once again didn't go out but uh, uh i mean make no mistake that kick would have would have taken out 99% of the division Corey's chin is crazy but still not crazy enough where i would be where i would feel comfortable advising him to kind of try and go out and in shield in the fifth <laughs> Ryan actually told me that uh, another cool setup for the spin kick that he likes was uh, to throw a shifting rear hook and then from there you can spin through uh, and uh, connect with the spinning kick it's a really it sounds like a very dynamic and cool setup I want to try it out but anyway that's uh, my recap of the fight and I guess what needs to be done here, what needs to be done right now, is kind of like explain why the fight happened the way it happened. Uh, multiple people have already written their analysis on the fight. Uh, I'm just going to quote Danny Martin for this one. Uh, so, uh, combines like if you look at if you take Yan's ability to pivot and create angles, he's the kind of fighter. I'm, I'm quoting right now, quoting Danny Martin's uh, threat here. He's the kind of fighter who will be in range for someone like Corey, but won't be easy to hit without return fire very often. And uh, this is something that Ryan talks about uh, when, when it comes to Muay Thai, where people kind of combine, people kind of flew through these offensive, t defensive phases. It's a com They're combining offense with their defense. It's not just all defense or all offense. And in MMA, Jan, I think, is the best at doing that. He understands... Uh, this is Danny speaking right now. He understands the meta. He understands the meta of the sport being about volume, but he configured the game to counter the, the output that, that uh, defines fighters like Corey or Aljamain Sterling. They're used to overwhelming their opponents with volume. And Jan's... I've talked about this in the beginning. Jan has learned to punish that type of process. So, Corey would jab, Yan would immediately dip under and counter jab, or maybe like duck under the jab and then throw an uppercut, roll and then roll into a low kick and uh, all that kind of stuff. He was like doing like half a dozen things, half, half a dozen other things from moment to moment. And this is what, is just, just plain has more depth. Corey looks to extend exchanges, and uh, this is 
gonna, this is very dangerous to do against Jan because if you go back and watch the uh, his fight against Jose Aldo, where Jose Aldo got hurt, usually at the end of combinations, that's uh, kind of kind of Jan kept turning the exchanges deeper and deeper, going way past first layer exchange and second layer exchange. What do I mean by first layer exchange? Uh, first layer exchange is where you kind of the opponent throws a jab, you dip under the jab and throw the right hand. That's a first layer exchange. It's kind of it's easy to do these things. On a hair trigger. And especially against guys who throw so much volume. Uh, we've talked about this. Ryan talked about this on his uh, Twitter page. Uh, this mother... Like, this piece of shit should already write an article about something. You know? But I guess since he's written so much, I guess uh, the, the fire just isn't there. Either way... Uh, with guys who throw so much volume and so much feint, they're hard to counter, because if you try to counter on a hair trigger, it's it's difficult to distinguish the real op openings from just the general static, you know? Uh, if you try to throw, like, let's say, the way, like, Geiji does. Geiji is actually one of the better guys when it comes to throwing uh, mid in the middle of his opponent's combination, but... When you try to, when a lesser fighter tries to do that and throw punch, throw counter strikes on the hair trigger, using like distance as a hair trigger, using certain punches as a hair trigger, the aforementioned duck under the jab followed with the right hand. If you mistake the feint or the non-committal strike for a genuine opportunity, you're liable to miss more often than you land. This has the knock-on effects of exhausting you and opening you up for a counter to your own counter. And this is what I say, uh, what I mean when I talk about layers, layers of... Uh, this is what analysts in general talk about when they speak about layers of exchanges, layered exchanges. Uh, this is a fighter start countering each other's counters, trying to draw out a certain counter to counter that counter, and while, if the opponent is good, he anticipates the counter to his counter coming, and it counters that counter, you know? It's, it's kind of like, it goes like a... You can, you can continue this ad nauseum, uh, depending on the, on the fighter's level. And so Jan would counter the punches with longer strikes, he would counter the punches with, uh, with, with kicks... He would uh, counter in combination while retreating or advancing, he would shift and counter... He would use the counters to steal the initiative and put Corey in the back foot. He would pun that's what I'm talking about, punishing Corey's offense. He forced Corey back by constantly dis by distinguishing the static. The real opportunities from the static. Corey would try to land a double jab into an uppercut. Jan would defend the jabs, kinda like pull back from the uppercut and then advance with a shifting combination and force Corey backwards. That's kind. Of, that's what we are talking about. Or Corey would try to pepper uh, Yan with uh, straight punches. Yan would either take them on the guards and kind of like slip some of them and then immediately immediately blast the kick. And so Yan kept stripping Corey of his tools, chipping away at him, chipping away at him, taking the tools away from him. Punishing, uh, punishing Corey for trying to implement new tools. Everything Corey had in his arsenal, Jan had an answer to that tool. 
And it wasn't something like, it wasn't something rote. He didn't answer with these predetermined set combinations. He constantly varied the timing of his punches, constantly varied the type of strike that he's going to use. He would constantly adjust the angle on which he was striking. Uh, he connected with mo many uh, rear left straights. And um, I've talked about this before, but a straight punch doesn't mean the, pun the, the hand, the arm itself has to be ramrod straight. A punch is straight because it travels along a straight line. And so the way Yan punches, it's kind of like it's textbook Soviet-style punching. He would kind of turn his shoulder over uh, so that it protects his chin and kind of allows him to vary the distance upon which uh, he connects and it allows him to vary the angle upon which he throws the strike. And also one thing that has to be pointed out about the way Yan strikes, it's, uh, it's mechanics more than anything, it's technique. He constantly punches like he wants to punch through his opponent. He doesn't seek to seek to club him. Doesn't seek to kind of just... Uh, it's not connections for connections' sake. He tries to really, really hurt his opponent. Uh, it's very evident by the way he punches um, to the body, for example. Corey would kind of like throw a bunch of jabs and uh, connect with several body shots. And those body shots are kind of like... They're kind of like slappy hooks. Kind of shoe-shining a little. And against most opponents it's fine, but not against opponents who are as conditioned as, uh, as Yan. And when Yan punched Corey to the body, the contrast is just so evident. It looks like Corey is going to... It looked like Corey was doubling over after each body punch that uh, Yan's connected with. And it wasn't Corey, uh, I guess, uh, it didn't look like Corey was reacting in pain, but it was a result of the way Yan was punching. He would connect, he would, and he would continue, like, kind of, it wasn't, he wasn't pushing the strikes. It was a very sharp connection, but it kind of looked like the connection continued through Corey's body. It's very hard to explain. I guess it has to be done by feel. Don't, don't, don't quite know how to put that in, in, uh, in words that are would be easy to kind of like break down the the way it feels to kind of throw a punch like that. But, but I, I guess it can, I guess it can just go back and watch the fight and kind of look for that specifically. And the way Yan was pressuring, man, the way he was pressuring, he was able to push Corey backwards using only his feet. That's what real pressure fighting looks like. And the corner kept kept saying to him. Eat away at him. Eat away at him. Keep eating away at the distance. And that's what, essentially, uh, that's the best way to describe what Yan was doing with his uh, foot positioning. His foot was constantly positioned towards Corey's center line, and so he was constantly angled to attack. And whenever Corey adjusted his position, Yan would adjust his position accordingly, so that his foot was kept in such a position, in such a way that it keeps pointing at the center line. He keeps staying in the position to attack. The reason why Corey was constantly retreating was because Yan was in range to, to, to throw and hurt Corey. It wasn't Corey just conceding space for no reason. Corey was actually using good footwork to kind of try and evade Yan, and uh, the way he was kind of like bicycling away from Yan in the fifth round was still kind of... It was still composed. It wasn't just him 
kind of like sprinting across the cage like like someone like for example like I guess Overeem or Gustafsson like when you contrast Corey's movement and Jan's movement Corey's steps are way bigger than Jan's uh, like if you haven't trained to fight it would seem like it would be more efficient to take a big step in fighting no that's not the case because in fighting, when you make big steps, it's actually easier to cut you off. It's easier to read your movement. It's easier to understand where you're, where you're going to go. Corey mixed in some smaller steps. It was still way better than the average type of footwork that you see in MMA. But if you look at the way Yan moves, he would take 10 steps to move like a foot. And by foot, I mean, you know, the, the, the uh, style of measurement, not, 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 not his feet. Not his actual feet. <laughs> Basically, like, make 10 steps to move, to move half a meter, I guess. Or maybe less. And what this lets him to do is to constantly stay in position to fire back with offense or to intercept his opponent. And it's also way harder to read. Because it's kind of like, just, uh, well, you, you don't exactly pay attention to it. And... If you look at the way Jan's head moves whenever he uh, moves around the octagon. If you look at the way Corey moves, his uh, head and upper body are constantly bobbing up and down and bobbing and weaving. I guess it can be incorporated into defensive movements. And uh, in fact, it's what I would advise most people to do. But the way... But um, if your style of defense is to kind of like use your upper body movement a lot, but... Another one problem with that it is you, that you even if you even if you miss the movement of the feet, you can still guess the direction in which the opponent is going to move if if his head is bobbing up and down or like from side to side. If you look at the way Yan moves, his head barely moves. The level of his head stays well level. It's kind of like uh, I guess like, like a gyroscope. Almost. The head stays in the same head slot. In the same triangle. You know? What do I mean by that? Well, a head, a head slot is the position of the head to, into which, well, you slot your head. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like there's different head slots. Uh, and depending on the head slot, you can throw a different strike from there. And you, count, you can counter that head slot with a different strike. And you can use the head slot as a feint. You put your head, you kind of dip your head to the side a little bit, and then you show your opponent, you kind of program your opponent to think that he's going to be able to get you there. And the triangle is just, uh, it's kind of like, it's the, uh, it's the three points that are formed by the head and by the shoulders. And, gen and uh, there's also other type of, type of triangles on your body. And the uh, fighters are generally taught to throw well, Soviet boxers are generally taught to throw into a specific triangle. It just makes commands easier, kind of uh, allows for easier explanation of certain concepts when you're giving instructions to fighters. It's uh, like a, a very long documented type of terminology. Like, uh, uh, anyway, Yan is amazing. One of the best displays of striking in MMA in a long, long while. I think I would say it's the best 
striking performance I've seen in MMA in general. People have called this the greatest title fight um, in recent memory, and I do not agree with that. It wasn't much of a fight, it was more of a performance. Corey was still... Corey is obviously dog-tough, just incredibly skillful, and what made this fight especially interesting for me is the way Jan navigated the margins presented to him by Corey. But I wouldn't call it much of a fight, you know? It was more of a showcase performance. I mean... I've had this discussion with uh, Kyle McLaughlin and uh, Conor Rebush uh, the other day where, well, Conor Rebush was having a discussion with Kyle McLaughlin and I just decided to chime in and then we proceeded to talk with Kyle about this. But um, it may be a result of my youth and the fact that I uh, haven't uh, been watching this uh, the whole thing for, for as long as uh, Kyle was. But I don't have like strict criteria where I can split performances from kind of fights and that kind of stuff. Uh, trying to split a performance like that at this level from a good fight at this level and define them on such strict criteria—it's kind of kind of like splitting hairs. That's just how I personally feel about what I'm seeing. It's just all subjective, regardless. Um, what I'm trying to say is that. Even if there were no no notable momentum shifts in the Yan Sandy fight, the way Yan was able to navigate the margins presented to him by Sandy was so interesting that I don't even care if the fight was back and forth or not in the end. To go one step further, I'd uh, like to compare this fight to something like Fury versus Wilder three. It wasn't really much of a fight, really, by that metric, you know, because aside from getting bombed a couple of times by Wilder, the rest was pretty much one-way traffic by Fury. And if you zoom out and give a dumbed-down, simplified account of both fights, then sure, Fury getting dropped by the biggest puncher in the division is extremely dramatic. However, Wilder was also thoroughly outclassed to the point of receiving career-threatening damage. Meanwhile, while there is no doubt that Sandy got completely broken down by the end, what pulls this fight ahead for me is that Jan took all of Sandy's best tools away from him through counters, adjustments, and positional superiority. Positional superiority. Uh, you could argue that uh, the same thing happened in Fury versus Wilder 3. However, I must point out that there was no real area of the fight where Yan outclassed Sandy so thoroughly as Fury outclassed Wilder in the, in the clinch. What made this performance special was that Yan combined all his skills together and uh, his mastery of transitional attacks and command over the margins and ability to leverage his intangibles. That's what broke Sandy. Not one singular thing. And this is what made me enjoy this fight much more than the ones uh, like people frequently mention as being great fights. And that's just, that's just me, not telling everyone how to, they should enjoy uh, th this sport. Anyway... Uh, it kind of... <laughs> Yan's mastery of mixed martial arts, it kind of swept me off my feet, really. I think uh, the man is a generational talent. Yeah, uh, not much of a fight, really, but still an incredible performance and an incredible example of problem solving at a truly elite level. That's how I would describe this fight. Uh, certainly a very dogged, certainly a very, uh, very, 
I would say that even in the loss, it was still a very intelligent performance from Corey. It's just that Jan was simply so much better in every area. Not in like a singular area, uh, because uh, with uh, certain intangibles coming into play, I guess Corey could have won some of those exchanges, but uh, it was, as I've said, the combination of all factors that made Jan's performance so special, and that's why he was able to dominate so thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, uh, I could talk about this performance for 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 much longer than I have already did. I could just, I suppose, I genuinely could make a watch along episode where I break down the exchanges, <laughs> individual exchanges, like sequence by sequence, because uh, there's just so much to admire. And we've we saw performances like Corey's, we saw the process, uh, the Corey's process break other fighters so easily. Uh, the volume, the feints, it's so hard to look defensively competent against that. Uh, it's so hard to to defend against that sort of output. It's so hard to against uh, so hard to defend against such a variety, such a varied output, such a variety of tools that Corey used, but. Uh, and Jan navigated that with ease. It's, uh, I think, Hax put it best. Piotr Jan is the type of fighter against whom you may have the performance of your lifetime. But it's not going to matter in the end. Now that's... That's something special. Anyway, uh, I guess this is the point where I should sign off. Uh... Uh, as I've said in the beginning, I'm going to cover the rest of the card uh, on part two of this podcast. Certainly certainly an excellent card all around with some uh, hiccups here and there. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk about those hiccups, as, especially a single particular hiccup on the UFC's and uh, I guess the Athletic Commission's part at length. No worries, I'm going to discuss it at length. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned for part two of this uh, recap of UFC 267. This has been Tangry Dome episode 27, uh, the breakdown and recap of uh, Sanhagen versus Yan. Uh, this was your, with you, as always, was your host Iggy, and uh, uh, see you soon. If you've got any questions, if you've got, if you wish uh, for me, if you, if you, if you'd like to hear me. Uh, elaborate on some of the things that I've said in this uh, breakdown because I, I was kind of doing this off the cuff. Uh, I wanted to prepare a script, but uh, just kind of like, uh, you know, after a certain point, I realized that it would be more efficient to actually write a whole article. And uh, I think the article part is going to be covered by other staff members of the fight side, particularly, I think Dan Albert is going to write something about Jan. And uh, yeah, if you've got any questions, then. Uh, uh, you can join our Discord uh, for as little as five bucks per month, and it uh, allows you, it give, gives you access to all of the stuff that we've released, particularly the alternate commentary for last weekend's event. Uh, Suryam and Fenyo covered the, uh, I think, the top three fights at least, or maybe more. And, uh, you know, I haven't talked about this, but uh, man, DC's commentary. Jesus Christ. Uh, 
I think everyone who was live tweeting during that event kind of noticed that uh, DC was essentially podcasting in there, not actually talking about what was happening. And he genuinely, Jan's pressure proved to be too much for DC's brain to handle. That's what it was. Like, Corey would backpedal like 10 steps and then like uh, DC would be like, uh, would be like, oh, look at that footwork. Corey's gone. And then Corey gets decked with the left straight backing off. And like, oh yeah, Corey Sanhagen, his, uh, his, his movement is so good. He's making Petrian miss a lot. And then Petrian connects with six punches in a row. <laughs> Meanwhile, Felder was uh, like, by contrast, Felder was very, very good during that. Uh, during that card, he has his moments where he kind of like makes mistakes, but I, I think he's improved. He's much improved these days. He's improving. He's uh, trying. He's he cares about becoming a better commentator. Uh, meanwhile, DC is more pre preoccupied with shilling for his teammates on commentary in the booth. Just atrocious. Uh, so I highly recommend you check out the alternate commentary, and. Uh, also join our Discord so we can gush about good performances and good fighters some more with like-minded fans. There's also been a lot of cool grappling, cool grappling sequences on this card, which I'm uh, going to talk about in part two. Um, uh, and uh, on to kind of like sort of tie these things together, we've released uh, um, a BJJ instructional on the Gooseneck guillotine. Like, we all saw sequences where a fighter would uh, grab uh, a gra grab a hold of a guillotine from top mount and wouldn't be able to finish it. Well, that instructional ex explains precisely the steps you need to take to finish the guillotine from that position. So it's very helpful for both uh, beginners and uh, uh, advanced students of uh, jiu-jitsu as well. Highly recommend you check it out. You can purchase it for sixty bucks, make a one-off purchase, or you, or you may join our Discord at the fifty-dollar tier, and also gain a ton of access to gain access to all the stuff that we've released. So I, I, I would say it's a bargain. Naturally, the Discord benefit also comes with that, and uh, yeah, you can always uh, just uh, drop your pledge down to something more manageable if you don't feel like supporting us at that higher tier. Anyway, uh, now that I've uh, plugged everything, I think that's everything. Anyway, yeah, uh, as I've said, see you soon. Uh, stay tuned for part two of this uh, recap. And uh, yeah, see you later. Bye.